Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Crop Vitality and Thiosol, the original thiosulfate liquid fertilizer. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor of No-Till Farmer. In this episode of the podcast, soil specialist at North Dakota State University Extension, Dave Franzen, shares his unconventional trajectory into the world of agriculture and why he thinks no-till is so critical for improving soil health. Plus, find out about some of the unique ways that Franzen has been educating others on all the many benefits of no-till farming. I didn't grow up on a farm. Had an uncle on the farm, but everybody had an uncle on the farm back then. And uh, I really didn't get uh, interested at all in soils till I got down to the University of Illinois and uh, decided I didn't want to wear a lab coat in chemistry all my life and and went into a program where I could kind of think about what I needed to do, the forestry program at Illinois at that time. And so anyway, one of the required courses was, was like Agronomy 101. And... As part of it, it was a soil section, and I got down to the pit, and there was physics, and there was chemistry, and there was biology, and there was math, and there was everything all in this one little space, and I thought to myself, that's, this is it. So I uh, took every soil course I could get my hands on, and then I started working for Fred Welch, who was soil fertility at Illinois, and uh, my senior year to make some money to get through the last year, and, and he offered me a master's, and and I took it, graduated, and and then ended up in a, as agronomist for a for a string of independent fertilizer retail chains and in the central part of the state. And and very soon I was in management and worked there for about 18 years. Got my um, PhD the last four years. Worked out a deal with my boss, and and uh, I worked 40 hours. And uh, I. Went, got my PhD and did all my research at night, weekends, whatever, and finished that up. And it was clear that he was going to sell the place. And so in 94, I applied for the extension soil specialist position at NDSU that had just come up for uh, rehiring, and uh, and they, they put me in. So I've been here since June 13th, 1994. So uh, I didn't realize you had this independent 18 months or so on your son. I take it you're an Illinois native. Where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up outside of Chicago. If you watch the beginning scene of the sting mm-hmm. in Joliet, where the bum is sitting there with, you know, with the empty wine glass or whatever, and, and then uh, one of the opening scenes of the Blues Brothers with the notorious uh, Stateville Prison, uh, which is a really horrible place. <laughs> <laughs> With really horrible people in it. Uh, that's uh, that was my background. So I, I didn't. I was born in Joliet and then raised in New Lenox, which is about six miles outside of town. And yeah. when I left it in 1971, it had 700 people, and now it has probably close to 40,000. Wow! Wow! Well, I'm lucky. I've never yeah, had. Wow. To, I've never had to visit the state prison in Illinois or any state prison, so I've been doing okay. I don't want to go anywhere closer to it. Dad used to drive by to go to the what we call the used bread place. You know the, mm-hmm. the sure the discount the the discount bread. bread place. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, you went to uh, when you went to uh, North Dakota. You got an interest quite quickly in no-till, didn't you? I did. In in Illinois, it was kind of an afterthought in one of those uh, pesky things. Uh, in Illinois, we provided 
anhydrous toolbars to our customers, and hardly anybody had their own. Very different than up here. Mm-hmm. And uh, and toward the toward the last, you know, the farmers were letting us know that if we didn't put coulters and and disc covers and that kind of stuff on our toolbars, then they would go someplace else that did. So, <laughs> so we did, uh, and people really weren't no till as we consider it, but they would go into the bean stubble and put their ammonia on, and they'd just plant their plant their corn right into it, and almost all the time, with very few exceptions, they would they would work the ground before they sure. before they planted the beans. And but uh, up here it's very different and I, I learned that very, very quickly when I came up here. So tell me what uh what you've been doing, uh what your research or extension work has really zeroed in on in regards to no till over the past thirty years or so. Well there's two remarkable things and, and one of those farmer driven. So when I when I came up here and saw the no-till, it was very surprising to me, and and I understood that it was probably more moisture related. But as I went on, I I learned it was deeper than that. And I I was invited to speak at I think the 1995 Manitoba North Dakota Zero Till Conference, which was held in Minot. Sure. And I remember it because it was the coldest day I'd ever woken up in North Dakota. That you know up to that <laughs> point and since. I woke up the next morning, it was 45 below, and that wasn't wind chill. That was really temperature, and I had to drive like 200 miles or something like that to get down to the southwest part of the state, and, and I thought there's not going to be a soul there, but the place was packed, and people just left their pickups run all day. It was a great right. meeting. But anyway, the night before was important because they invited me up to the second floor uh, for kind of a after after event and mm-hmm. a lot of the original no-till people were there and and so i just i was just soaking this stuff up like a sponge and one of the things they told me was that that they didn't follow ndsu north dakota state recommendations for nitrogen anymore they found that after they've been in no-till for a while and some have been no-till for 20 years that they could reduce their nitrogen rate and so and they reduced it to the point where they didn't even pay attention to what our recommendations were. They just did what they thought was right. So I remember that. And then in 2010-ish, I had accumulated well over 100 site years of N-rate data all across the state from all corners. And and so I, before I put a pen to the recommendations, I thought, well, I wonder if, if they're right. So so I divided it into long-term no-till sites and sites that were conventional till, and and they were right. It took about 50 pounds less nitrogen to get at least the same yields and at least the same protein on spring wheat in Durham mm-hmm. as it did in conventional sites in the neighborhood. So that was that was eye-opening. So that's the first, and as far as I know, it's the only nitrogen credit for long-term no-till I know anywhere. Um, not sure why. I just know that we did it. And then when I did, when I put out lots and lots of nitrogen rate trials for corn, I deliberately put sites in long-term no-till and conventional till. And again, same thing. And I did the same thing then when I moved on to sunflowers. And again, the same thing. And just recently with two-row malting barley, you know, the industry has kind of moved to that. Sure. We, our recommendations were thin. So, again, I've had long-term no-till sites, and I had a traditional or a transitional site that was just turning into no-till, and they were right again. So it's a it's a thing. So that was that was huge. 
So that's what I learned, and I got the idea from farmers. If they hadn't said anything, if I hadn't been invited up to that second floor, I'm not sure anybody ever mentioned it to me again. So, But I remembered it. I kept it in my back pocket, and when I had the data, I tested it out. And I see one of those pioneers from those days just passed away recently, Luther Benston. I just uh, I just saw that on Facebook, and uh, there was a picture of him and yeah. and Joe Brecker, who's a who's yeah. a good friend, and I worked on his farms. And yeah, it's, you always need those kinds of people. Yep, and we've had Joe Brecker several times as a speaker at our National Noltoage Conference. And Luther, I remember talking to him, and my God, he was still skiing when he was eighty five years old. And I think that was one. Well, I can't do that. I paid too much money for my new hips. I don't want to screw that up again. You mentioned Minot, and I was up there at one of the Manitoba, North Dakota meetings. I know how cold it was. And then a few years later, we sent one of our other editors up there. And uh, she had difficulty getting into her room. It was so cold, making the key work. And she actually ended up with frostbitten fingers when she got back home. So, <laughs> <laughs> I know how That's cold horrible. it was. <laughs> right. But she uh, talked. You know, she yeah. talked about the uh, pickup trucks being left on and running all night long. So, uh, yeah. what else? Have you, uh, you're, you're a real soils guy. You know, I mean, we got other people that are agronomists and field crops guys, but you're a real soils guy. And uh, what have you learned about soils with no-till in the North Dakota? Well, I, I understand why they did it, and I don't know why this didn't hit me when I came here because my mm. predecessor Carl Fanning. I don't know if you ever got to know him or not. Yes, he's still I know around. He is. Yeah, he's. I think he's in his nineties and pretty, you know, pretty much more frail than he used to be. But, mm-hmm. but he kind of encouraged me on the soil conservation uh, side, and of course, so the late eighties uh, were horrible up here, as they were in many places sure. in the in the states and in Canada. And so he spent a lot of time talking about that. But I, um, this is a weird story. So, so I got a call from the Governor's Historical Society in Bismarck, and they wanted me to give a talk on the history of fertilizer use in North Dakota. And I just heard the word governor, and I said yes. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and said, what the heck am I going to talk about for 45 minutes? I'm going to have this chart. Yeah. that shows NPK use from about 1950 until now. And what can I say about that? And then I started thinking, I'd heard some stories about buffalo bones, you know, many sure. years ago, you know, back around the turn of the last century. Yeah. And so I started investigating it, and it was quite the business back then. Apparently, you know, we see the movies of the Old West and all this, and once in a while you see some kind of a skull or something by the side of the road. But apparently, according to accounts of farmers all over the state of North Dakota, is that they would they would start to plow and then they'd hit something and they'd have to stop and take the bone and throw it off to the side and then they'd go for a little bit and they'd hit something. But these are all over the place. Yeah. You know, I think the common thought is that uh, natives used every part of the buffalo. Well, they did, but they didn't use all the parts to all the buffalo. I mean, how many scapulas can a, can a family really need? you know, over the course of a few years. And so these bones are like everywhere. They're just everywhere. And so so people pick them up. And so I, I found some records of, of different places where they put them. And, and I, you know, they were, what, millions of tons. And 
uh, it was quite the business. It was a business in the Central Plains for a while until it ran out, maybe a decade or so in Kansas and Nebraska, and then it moved up here. And then, um, and, and then it lasted several years. And the records of, if you go into the records of different towns, they have these centennial celebrations or so, sure. which in North Dakota would be somewhere in the 70s, the 80s, somewhere in there that they would publish these things. And they would tell stories of, of it would be their only income to keep them through the winter, or it would be their income that, that let them uh, put, uh, buy enough timber in order to either put a floor on a house or, or actually kind of build a house. So it was a big deal. So, so I figured out how much, how much phosphate fertilizer that would be because bone meal is a typical organic phosphate or a fertilizer. And so it amounted about two years of phosphate application at about today's present rate. So I thought, well, that's cool. That'll fill up 15 minutes. And then I started to think a little bit deeper and, and I thought, well, I wonder how much soil we really lost and what what was in it. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at that, and the more I read, the more appalled I was. We hear about Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas. Never hear anything about North Dakota. I've been to, what, a dozen a dozen town museums across the state, and there'll be pictures of a wonderful harvest from that before 1929 or so. And then they'll show parades and stuff like that in the 50s, but then there's this big gap where nobody was taking any pictures. I mean, it was so depressing. There's an area southwest of Fargo called the Cheyenne Grasslands, and every quarter section in that area used to be farmed before the 30s, and it all blew away, and all that's left is sand dunes. And the government bought it up, and it's just this grassland. They rented out for a few bucks to, to put cows out, but it used to be profitably farmed many years ago. So that happened all the way across the state. Uh, we had two to three feet of six to seven and a half percent organic matter soil in many areas of the state, most of the state really, except for the very far west where it's so dry. But even at that, they had a foot and a half. And most of that's all gone. And so I just, the more I read, the more depressed I was. Uh, But it was certainly clear to me why people out in Beach and Galva and why Joe Brecker and others, you know, decided that they, if they didn't do something, there really wouldn't be anything left because they're, really wouldn't be anything left. So that was a huge re- revelation, and I put together a presentation. In fact, I've got a voiceover version of it on my website at, uh, that talks about the whole thing, about the history of phosphate export from, from North Dakota. And there is enough soil blown away, and people analyzed it. I, th- I think they went out in New York City, and they could take cupfuls of it, you know, and, and then have it analyzed. And um, it was far more phosphate, potash, organic matter, anything good in that soil uh, that was blown away that was left behind in the prairies. So I've used it as a shock troops, you know, when we're talking about why a person should change their tillage. And it, uh, it's surprising. It, it, it's remarkable, really, how emotional some people get when, when I give that presentation that, uh, you know, some big burly guy come up here and almost give me a hug and have, you know, a, a hit of a tear in his eye saying, you know, thank you. I, you know, I always, I, I knew we were doing the right thing, but nobody really put words to it. So, um, and I, I think some, it's, it's set the table for people to kind of raise their eyebrows and say, well, maybe it's not all in the ditch after all. 
and uh, starting to change their habits. So I, I think it's been important. Uh, Dr. Abby Wick has been really important in getting the extension message out and work with farmers face-to-face and things to get people to change into a more con- conservation mind. But but I think that scholarly stuff I did to, see, to, to find out how really horrible it was up here, uh, I think that set the table for that. So I, we worked together really well. Well, we're down here in Wisconsin and kind of on the Corn Belt, but uh, we don't have the wind erosion problems. I mean, wind erosion can be pretty serious for you up there, isn't it? It is. The whole Great Plains, you know, it, it's, sure. it, whenever it gets dry. This this winter it hasn't been bad because the first snowfall was full of water, and so everything's been sealed tight. But but in many, many years, we've already had several snowstorms through the through the winter, and, and a lot of farmers and landowners don't even know what's going on because they're in Arizona or someplace, and they don't yeah. see it. But but the poor people that are left up here, they're having to stop sometimes uh, before they go another foot because they can't see in front of them because of all the dirt blowing around. Do you uh, think no-till is, acreage is still growing, or is it declining, or is it flat in your area? We we had a, a great burst of activity, as I understand, back until about 91. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are many years in the state that, that aren't no-till now that were no-till then. And then in 92, it started getting really wet. I mean, it was just like the tap was turned off, and then all of a sudden it was turned on. Uh, the big lake within the state, other than Sakakawea, the damned Missouri, uh, is the Devil's Lake area. And there was some some writing about maybe it going dry after 89, 90, when it, during all that drought. And then all of a sudden, uh, the the rains came, you know, just, you know, double the rainfall in a year. And all of a sudden, the lake was up. Everything it was really, really wet. And so a couple of years before I came, it started getting wet, and then all through the 90s, it was pretty nasty, and so people just got terrified that they wouldn't get in the field and get anything done, and so they started working the fields. What they found out, I think, is that the fields were going to be wet, whether they were no-till or not, but they were just terrified and didn't know what to do, and they figured they'd do something, and so they tore it up. Yeah. So now a lot of those fields are going back in there, uh, but... I think I think the thing I worry most about is that the generation of farmers that's kind of all in no-till are about to give it up to somebody else, either retire, sell something, and and I just kind of wonder if people from away come in that they really understand the value of this, and it's not that they're lazy; they they actually did it for a reason. So it's, there's a reason that has to be covered all the time person doesn't really realize how windy it is here and unless you live up here for a little bit and you understand that 20 to 25 mile an hour is just kind of a calm breeze <laughs> and 60 mile an hour is not all in uncommon. Right. So what's happening? pHs have changed. You've got some acid soil problems. What's going on in those areas? Yeah. So part of the, part of the problem with the lack of knowledge about acidity is the, is a historic practice of composite soil sampling. Mm-hmm. So in in Illinois, where I came, of course, there wasn't any variable rate technology in the mid-70s, and it wasn't right. until really about 89 or 90. But at least in that state, because of their grid sampling tradition from back in the 20s and 30s, 
we sampled in about, well, first of all, about a 3.3 acre grid. And then very soon after maybe 1990 or so, they changed to a two and a half acre grid, but, but they weren't variable rating at that time. They were just, but it just gave them an idea. And then when the, when the numbers came back from the lab, then you average the numbers and that's the number you used in order to apply the fertilizer or the lime or whatever. But, and so they had a knowledge. It's no mystery to me that variable rate application kind of started in Illinois with the uh, line IFS and John Moore, I think that's what his name was. And, but it was because farmers already realized that there was variability across the field. When I came up here to North Dakota and started talking about variability, because I did my sampling study up here too, just like I did in Illinois, they just kind of looked at me and said, you know, the field's flat. There's no variability out there at all. Yeah. And I said, yes, there is. You know, I can drive by the field and I can see yellow, green, and all kinds of things in between. But it took them a little bit to figure that out. And and believe me that, you know, that there really was variability and you need to sample this way to get it. But as soon as people started his own sample, all of a sudden, all this, all this really low, really high pH. I worked in a 40-acre field with an intensive sampling study about 60 miles west of Fargo. And the pH... In 1995, varied from 4.9 to 7.8 in the same 40-acre field. Wow. And so these these places have been around for a long time. I did a survey in 1996 of the state, went to several areas within every county in the state, did a hilltop slope depressional area. And there was a large part of the state, almost 20% probably, that had pHs below 6.5. Mm-hmm. And some as low as a low fives, and I could go out right now and and uh, identify a few fields that have been conventional till forever, and uh, they had pHs down around five one five something like that. But the people in the no till are are seeing the results quicker than their conventional till brethren because the acidity is all concentrated up on the top few inches because of where they place the urea or they sure. shallow place ammonia over the last 30 years. And so, so we're in a situation now where people have had to uh, embrace liming and it's so foreign to them. But people are catching on and they realize if they don't do anything, it's just going to be bare. So, you know, onward we go, I guess. The no-tillers are, are going to ones that dress it first, but eventually, probably in a decade or so, there won't be very many conventional tillers around, uh, except the ones that have high amounts of calcium carbonate in their soil naturally. But the ones that don't are going to have to lime their conventional till fields, and it's going to take them three times as much lime to do it because they, they're tilling down to probably six, eight inches or so. Right. My first experience with lime is I was a... Uh... I like to tell people today I'm as old as dirt. I'm in my 80s, but I grew up on a farm <laughs> north of De- north of Detroit, 40 miles, and we had a little 18-acre lake on the farm. And my dad had somebody come in and we uh, dug a marl pit, and so we uh, we started spreading marl, which led to I don't know all the chemistry on it, but it's somewhat similar to lime. So we started liming with well, marl. Well, it's all calcium carbonate. It's just right. really soft. Right, right. So we were, we didn't even have to bring it to the farm. It was already there, and all we had to do was spread it. So um, 
I'm a I'm a farmer up there. I'm I'm a, I'm a farmer 60 miles west of Fargo, and I'm going to soil sample. How how do you want me to take that sample depth, etc.? Yeah. So so for the for the phosphate potash, organic matter, zinc, um, which is I think most of, and then probably salt. Uh, you you take a zero to six inch sample, but then you continue on and uh, do a two foot core because we we use uh, the zero to six plus the six to 24 for nitrate nitrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have a deep freeze up here. And so soil sampling in the fall, we find out how much nitrate there is and we directly subtract that from our nitrogen recommendation. And, and I find that's absolutely crucial for our nitrogen recommendations to be tight. Otherwise you just kind of, I don't know, it's just a kind of a guess. So I've, I've, I've tried it relating yields uh, or relative yields, not actual yields, but relative yields with with total known available in uh, with and without the soil test. And it, the soil test really strengthens it a lot. And so that's, that's very important. That's why many fields up here actually sampled every year as opposed to the Corn Belt where they'll wow. do P and K every four years or so. But it's, it's sampled every year and it's important. So zone zone sampling is is most relates to what the patterns are in the field, uh, and the zones uh, it, they're topography based. Uh, so you could use if you had some kind of a topography program, you can use that. I also encourage people to think about multi-year yield maps on relative yield. Uh, and it doesn't matter what crops they are; just put them in relative yield and stack them together. And uh, satellite images, drone images, uh, bare soil images, sometimes. Uh, never uh, the soil survey maps because those lines aren't fine enough. And then uh, what else? Electrical conductivity. Uh, a lot of people use the Varus. Uh, a lot of people use the magnetic uh, equivalent of that because magnetism and electricity are related ma mathematically. And so the, the, if you use the magnetic EM38 or something close to it, then, then it gives you the same patterns as using the Varus. And the EM38 is nice because if you have a lot of rocks, it's because it's going to tear your Varus up because those discs actually go into go in the soil and the EM38 doesn't. So there's any number of things that people could do. If you find that you have some, especially, well, particularly if you're a no-tiller and you find that you have some acid areas in your field, uh, then... Uh, go back into those areas and do a zero to two and a two to six so that you can find out really how low it is up at the surface because that's going to affect your residual herbicides it's going to affect the nodulation of your legumes and uh, frankly it's going to affect how much aluminum and manganese might get into that crop to cause a toxicity we'll come back to the episode in a moment but first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Crop Vitality and Thiocell, for supporting today's podcast. It's as important as ever to ensure you're getting the most out of your fertilizer. Recent studies from Auburn University and Crop Vitality show when paired with a UAN solution, thiosulfate fertilizers slow down the process that causes you to lose your nitrogen into the atmosphere and groundwater. Visit CropVitality.com to explore the studies on nitrification inhibition Check out the ebook Nitrogen and the Thiosulfate Factor and learn more about Crop Vitality's thiosulfate fertilizers. That's cropvitality.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation.
One of the uh, things that came up at our National Noltoids Conference the last couple of years has been fertility stratification. What's going on up there? Is this a big concern of you p- people or not? Oh, well, it, yeah, it's a thing. So in the 70s, see, the no, whole no-till idea was a farmer thing. Sure. I, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe eventually the the experiment people and uh, the research people and the extension kind of get in on it. But frankly, it was a it was a farmer idea, as many ideas are. Yep. And and so when people around the soil fertility community heard about that, they just they were they just went apoplectic because they knew that it was going to result in stratification, and the plants weren't going to get to it. And oh my God, we're all going to die. Right. And so there were several long term studies of surface application versus. Uh, deeper application, and they found it didn't make any difference at all. And when you think of it, it makes perfect sense. So let's consider a no-till field. It has a little bit of mulch on it, and so it's it's moisture. So that area up on the surface is moist for a very long time, uh, as opposed to its to its uh, conventional till cousin. And then let's say it got really dry. Let's say in June it got really dry, and it dried out that foot, two foot, something like that. When it rains, what's it wet up? Does it wet the two foot up, the two foot depth up, or does it wet the surface up? It wets the surface up. So anytime we have a drought and anytime it sprinkles, anytime that you get a heavy fog, anytime that you have any kind of rain, it wets up the surface before it wets up the deep. And so I think that's why they found that it didn't really make any difference whether you put it up near the top or you you put it down deep. Sure. A lot of the studies I've seen that have deep banding, it doesn't really make any difference, and I think that's why. Do you think this applies to the Corn Belt too, or just to your area? You know, I haven't I haven't seen anything compelling from Tony Vine or with Emerson's work in Illinois. Um, Antonio did some deep banding work in Iowa, and none, right. none of them are excited about about deep placement. I think the thing they worry about the most is maybe putting it on in the fall of the year before the rains, and then it goes into the streams and it goes into the rivers, and that's why I'm a chemical oceanographer. Did you know that? No. <laughs> that was that was that was my career goal when I was in high school: was to get a chemistry degree from Illinois, and then I'd go to Woods Hole or someplace and and get a master's PhD maybe in in chemical oceanography. So now that EPA and the government has designated that Missouri is part of uh, the Gulf of Mexico and that the Red River moves up into uh, the Arctic Ocean and nitrates and phosphates in the water is important, I'm officially a chemical oceanographer, so I've achieved my career goal. There you go. You mentioned Woods Hole. I've been to Woods Hole go. on the way to Nantucket Island, so I actually know where it is. <laughs> Um, you grew yeah. up in a, you grew no, it's up in, a very famous place. Yeah. You grew up in an area and worked in an area where it was really corn and soybeans. And now with some of the climate change, these two crops are getting more important in North Dakota and South Dakota with new genetics. What's going on in that area? Yeah. So, um, it's, it's interesting. So, so I believe in climate change because I believe the glaciers were over my house at one time that were two miles high, and and uh, and then now they're gone. And so things come and go. And uh, Greenland was green, and then it wasn't, and then it was green again, and then it wasn't. And so these things happen. And I think the the Great Plains are kind of a microcosm of climate change. 
because we're in that kind of border between sometimes it's wet and sometimes it's dry and sometimes it's hot and sometimes it's cold. And people that live here just go through that all, all the time. We can't, we don't know from year to year exactly what we're going to get. And so as far as farming goes, people up here are great gamblers. So I don't know, maybe they'll all retire to to uh, Reno or Las Vegas because they already got it in their blood. <laughs> but but yeah, it's a it's a it's a big deal. But I think the thing that's really affected the soybeans and the corn more than anything else has been that genetics that you talked about. Sure. By having the earlier earlier inbreds, I think the seed companies have seen that the corn belt is pretty saturated, and certainly they still make advances because 300 bushel corn in Illinois is not all that common anymore. The varieties we have, the soybean varieties, the corn varieties, especially the corn varieties. When I came here, I never thought that we'd be growing 250 bushel corn in North Dakota, but last year we had three different sites when, and there were areas within all of those experiments where we, where we reached 250 bushel corn and not only in the valley, but geez, you know, 100 miles northwest of here. It just blew me away. So the genetics are really amazing. And and we had late planting last year, too. So by the book, if you believe the book, which is often wrong, but if you believe the book, there's no way that could have happened. But it did, and <laughs> probably will again sometime. Maybe not right. next year, but sometime it will. It's Iowa with an intersperse of uh, once in a while you see a beet field in the southeast part of the state. But we have soybeans growing all the way to Montana, all the way to Canada, all the way out west, um, all, you know, soybeans more than corn because the soybeans are kind of a low-input crop. And so it's, uh, and unless you grow them for a long period of time, it really doesn't have the disease pressure and this nematode and sudden death syndrome that other places do. Uh, there'll be a honeymoon period of about a decade or so before those things start to come in. But I I like the state because there's so much diversity in it. It's not California, sure. it's not Oregon, but but as far as being a one of a shirt tail corn belt state, got the corn and the soybeans, and so they're lucky they hired me because they hired hired me in spite of my experience in that. <laughs> but right. spring wheat, durum, barley, you know, different kinds of barley, oats, any small grain you can think of, pretty major sunflowers, very major canola. Uh, about 18 to 20 different crops that are pretty major depending on where you are in the state. And that uh, keeps you fresh. It, yeah. it, it, nothing is boring here. Well, one of the problems we see in the Corn Belt is uh, corn and soybeans. That's the rotation. They're not diversified. And your people up there are probably, if they're putting corn and soybeans into their rotation, it's probably more diversified than it is in the Corn Belt, right? Uh, there are some people that pretend that they're Iowa. <laughs> but yeah. I would say that most people, 90% of them, have at least a third third crop in there. Yeah. One of the hot spots right now is dwarf corn or shorter corn. Uh, is that, what's that mean to no-tillers? I mean, some no-tillers are saying, oh, maybe I won't have as much residue to leave on the surface. And others will say, well, I got too much now. Maybe shorter corn will be a benefit. What, what do you know about shorter corn? Well, I don't know anything about shorter corn. That's news to me, but let's, let's pretend I do know something about it. <laughs> All right. If I was a new no-till, you know, maybe three, four, five years, something like that, or maybe sure. I was really, really narrow rows, uh, then I think maybe the shorter corn might be a, a decent option to get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, the long-term no-till, it's exactly like you're saying, is uh, you go west of the Missouri River, 
where the yield potential is maybe 150, 160 bushels on a on a good year, as opposed to maybe 250 over here on the east side. Uh, they need as much residue as they can. I've heard more than once that one of the problems that people West River have in the western part of the state is that uh, they have trouble keeping the residue on the field, that they really need some high residue crops. And certainly their small grains will, will do that. Uh, the corn will do that. Um, sunflowers a little bit, but those leaves rot really fast. And any legume you put out there rots really fast too. But they developed a biology where where the the worms, the beetles, those kind of things will come up and they'll chew those and drag them back down. And you go out there in the spring after, say, a corn crop, and there's really nothing there but the stalks sticking up. There's mm-hmm. there's no mulch there at all. So I know what they're saying. That that yeah. happens, and it happened when I was in Illinois too. There we had a customer, a pretty good sized customer that that went no till, and uh, we all thought it was a little bit crazy but he was he, he was doing the right thing and and when i went out there after three four years no-till in the spring of the year and you could see all these holes around where the earthworms that were, were coming up and they were just chewing up the at night they're coming up and chewing the leaves dragging them back down the holes and so all you could see is just last year's stalks you didn't see any leaves or anything out there it was remarkable yeah and some of these earthworm holes, it's remarkable. You go in there and you can see where they've actually pulled the leaves down into the holes. Neat. No, I, I've never seen that, but uh, yeah. it, was, it was pretty clear to me what was going on. Yeah. Well, you were one of our No-Till Innovator Award winners about five years ago, and uh, I was looking over what we had written about you at the time, and you, a couple of things you, I'd like to talk about. As you came up to North Dakota, you brought some expertise with you on tile drainage and precision ag. Can you uh, highlight what you've been doing in those areas? Well, I've certainly been supportive on the tiling. And and I think Hans Condell, my colleague over in plant sciences, he's done a lot of work with that. Tom Shearer in the Ag Engineering Department, he's done a lot of work with that. I've been supportive, but I've been the real teachers. But as far as site-specific, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think the work I did in Illinois with uh, Ted Peck, I, I uh, reproduced that up here. And I figured my first year that I would, I would find out exactly what I did in that we needed to sample an acre in order to do it. And since we were sampling two feet for most crops and four feet for sugar beets, that it would be entirely impractical. And, and so I, I did it because I knew what I was doing and I was getting my feet wet and learning all this stuff in a steep curve. And But then when I did it the second year on the same fields and I saw those same patterns of nitrate, which is something I was taught uh, in my classes that I would never see, but I saw it. Then I, it just dawned on me that these patterns are there for a reason. Let's figure out what the reason is, and we don't have to do all these sampling and we'd still get that detail. So the zone sampling, I'm not going to say I invented it. I stole some ideas from people up in Canada that were working. Their papers mentioned hummocky terrain. And and then uh, Raj Kosala was getting his Ph.D. about the same time that I was here at North Dakota, and he worked with zones, too, in Colorado. He's in Kansas State now, and so there were a few of us that worked on the zone approach, and and that's what works up here. That's what made that's what made site-specific nutrient application up here profitable. That's that's what made it practical. Uh, if we were having to do a, a dense zone grid, no way in the world nobody would ever be doing that. But 
A lot of people are up here, and so I feel good about that. What about cover crops? Yeah, you want to hear my my great failing? <laughs> sure. <laughs> All right. So, so my very good friend Bill Ron that passed away a couple of years ago. He he worked with a couple of of ag engineers, as you know, and developed the Green Seeker down in Oklahoma yeah, right. State. And so, after a while of, of working on the soil part of it, then I started started working and seeing if this might help us with uh, in season application for for corn at, at first, and then lately with uh, with small grains. And so we have. We developed algorithms for coming in about V5, V6 corn or so, and and determining uh, with the help of an enriched strip or an insufficient strip, whatever you want to call it, as a standard within the field within a variety that whether you needed additional nitrogen and really with the algorithm about how much you should apply. So that's been published for what five, six years now, and lately just upgraded it, and then uh, just lately. I have algorithms for spring wheat for for going out there about V5 using the using the the same system an enriched strip and then using the algorithm uh, with the readings at V but V5 to figure out how much nitrogen you might apply uh, as a top dress for for yield and then I think we're the only ones that have I I'm the only one that has this I guess I'll own it but uh, we also have an algorithm if you go in at uh, flag leaf with the enriched strip and well actually not even that if you go in with a at flag leaf uh, and knowing whether your spring wheat variety it tends to have protein or it's one of them that tends to be lower protein that you can use that reading to see if a an immediately post antesis n application will give you a protein increase uh, that may be profitable depending on what the what the buyers might give you and so all those things are published, and the corn one's been published for a long time. I really wonder myself if there's anybody at all in the state that uses that. There's more data, there's more papers, there's more book chapters, there's more books about using these active sensors uh, to direct an in-season application of nitrogen than almost any anything I can think of. Uh, you know, I know just just ourselves. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of points of data and papers and book chapters and extension articles. I asked Brian Arnell, who's down at Oklahoma State. He's kind of he worked with Bill Ron when he was there, and he succeeded him down at Oklahoma. I asked him uh, about a year ago. I said, "You guys have had really, really uh, focused extension programs on the use of the active senses, and you guys invented it." So. So how many of your producers use it? And he said 10%. Yeah. So that's my great sailing, all that work. Yeah. You know, someday people will use it, but I don't know. Maybe it's one of those things where, you know, a piece of art doesn't uh, become valuable until the, farm, the pe- person dies. But uh, it, it's there. There's no reason why people can't use it. Uh, the other the other thing to do is just to guess. And I, I think these this, this data is a lot better than guessing. Yeah, but at the same time, you talked a little earlier about the Varus unit, and there were lots of skeptics about that for years, and now apparently it's catching on in your area, right? Yeah, it. Um, one of the things that uh, that confuses people is they think that it would, at least up here, that it would be uh, that it would help identify one thing out in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you use the Varus in different parts of the of the United States or the world, and 
And a lot of times, everything is just so background noise is that the one thing that's important to you is the only thing that really reads. So, but up here, it's different because we have um, we, we actually have soluble salts. We have soluble salts to a great degree in many, in many fields. So it's reading that. It's reading soil moisture. It's reading soil organic matter. It's reading depth to a limiting layer. It's reading all of those things all at once. And so I tell people here that if you're using it for more than just a pattern detector to build a zone on, then, then that's, you know, you're, you're asking too much of it. Yeah. But if I went to Missouri and tried to use it to depth to their uh, limiting layer, that, that really high clay thing that's underneath some of their, their fields or in an area where there's fragipans, yeah, you could use it for that. And I've even seen people use it in Nebraska when everything else, there's no salts, the moisture is about the same. All of those things are very, very similar. They can even detect where there's higher nitrate and where there's less nitrate. But that doesn't happen up here because you got so many things all confounding, all going on at once. So to us, it's just a pattern detector. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that I missed bringing up to you? You know, the the one thing I guess I just want to say is that I, I appreciate you and your ability to communicate and your ability to support people that are no-till. So many people, especially ones that are kind of pioneers in their community doing this, there's a lot of peer pressure against this. And sure. And so, you know, if, if if you decide to kind of switch the no-till and, and you leave your stock standing and you leave your stubble uh, and, and then you go to the grocery store, you go to the church or you go to the bar or something like that, and somebody's already always going to be ribbing you like, okay, so when's the farm sale? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. Right. And, uh, and, and so being able to read uh, articles uh, and to get help from like-minded people uh, that's really important to people that are trying to do the right thing. Right. Well, one of the things that bugs me is the hot words these days are soil health and sustainability. And then you look at what no-tours have been doing for 30 years. They've been keeping the cover on the soil. They've been uh, keeping residue all winter. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, they qualify for sustainability. But, my gosh, they've been doing it themselves for 30 years. It's not new to them. Yeah, and so I don't know how many legislatures or policymakers actually read your material, but I'm just going to put this put this out there that that people look at the at the six inch layer, that surface layer, and they figure that somebody's been no, doing no till for 40 years. They probably that's as good as it's going to get, and that's yeah. not true mm-hmm. because these prairie soils were often. Uh, in the moisture areas in North Dakota and other places of the east, these these areas were often two, three feet thick of very dark soil. Uh, Joe Brecker, his name's come up a couple times. Sure. So so Joe has some of his fields that have soils of six and a half to seven and a half percent organic matter. So that's remarkable. And I would say that probably in those soils, uh, the six inch depth has probably peaked as far as organic matter. But if you sample his feet, Fields, he's also he also has that dark soil moving down towards the foot, mm-hmm. and so he's developing depth as well as the percent organic matter. And so I think it's totally unfair that people look at people who have been doing no-till for a long time and figure they've done all they can, and that's not true. That they're yeah. still sequestering carbon, probably at a greater rate than people that just make the switch. Yeah. And so they need to be compensated as well. 
We just celebrated our 31st year of having our National No Tillage Conference, and Joe Brecker and his, and his brother Gene were speakers at the very first one we ever had had in, I think, 1993. Wow. That's great. Right. So... Joe and Gene and I are all old now, so. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're 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 talking to the choir here. Yeah, right. That's all for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to Dave Franzen for joining us, and thanks again to our sponsor, Crop Vitality and Thiosol, for helping to make this series possible. A transcript of this episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at notillfarmer.com. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.